I love it when she taught me up. Hey, you guys. Welcome back to Block Channel. We're back for episode 76. And I'm joined today by Dimitri, who's back again to have another awesome conversation uh, about DeFi investing, trading investing, and also uh, have our uh, another repeat guest on the show, uh, Kevin Zhao, who we've had on before. Um, you guys really loved him. He really schooled us on you know how to uh, think about running crypto funds and kind of the general uh you know struggles and or you know the insights as to like how you know he goes about doing that with his fund Galois capital and so with DeFi and everything popping off and us having previously on kyle davies a few episodes back it made sense to have more of these you know really uh legit trade type um really like old school focused i like i like to think like trade desk folks like onto the show because i feel like they really give us uh, a really interesting insight into like the inner workings of like how these markets work and and you know i, I myself depend on kevin uh, whenever i have hard questions so it makes sense for to share it with all you all so you can also get all the goodies that i have the pleasure of receiving myself um so that being said uh dimitri do you want to introduce introduce yourself to the audience for number 76 yeah man uh hey everyone you know me i'm dimitri kodi uh co-host here at block channel and founder of the bitcoin podcast and generally badass person so you know you guys know that it's good to be back <laughs> thanks man and uh you know as i said uh we have on kevin zhao today and just so kevin you just want to just you know uh speak up real quick let everybody know how you're doing how you're feeling and then we'll like hop into some just good nice conversation uh yeah you know uh glad to be on uh for the second time um, you know, I, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, markets are showing some sign of life and activity. So very excited about that. Uh, you know, I guess just a quick background on myself. I run Galois Capital um, and, uh, you know, we, we focus primarily on liquidity provision and market making. Awesome. And so, you know, it's it's been a really interesting summer. It's been it's been a lot of fun talking to everyone, getting their different insights into how uh, DeFi, decentralized finance, and, you know, these different composable, uh, you know, financial instruments, how they tie it together and what sort of like interesting things will come about from that uh, in regards to liquidity and, and innovation and all that good stuff. Uh, but, you know, Zal is about making the money. He's about, you know, like day over day, just like, you know, like, like getting those points on the board and, and, and making money the old fashioned way. Not just swing trading, you know, not just anything, you know, like like waiting and, and, and trying to like run with the bulls like everyone does every few cycles. Like Kevin makes money even when everyone else is not making money. So he, he would be the right person to like kind of talk about how interesting um, DeFi is, if any, and how novel it is, um, you know, kind of given like his traditional background. Um, so, so Kevin, like, I guess really to just to start the conversation off on the right foot, um, it, how have you yourself as a firm, like, when did you start paying attention to the, you know, DeFi narrative? And when do you think it, it reached a point of maturity where um, yourself as a fund, like, really needed to start taking it seriously? Um, yeah, so, you know, we've been following it for a couple of years now, but uh, I wouldn't say, you know, we've not had a very strong focus on it. It's just something kind of that was in the background that we would track here and there, just as developments happen in the crypto ecosystem with Ethereum and whatnot. Uh, but we only started really getting heavy into this stuff, maybe about, um, you know, second half of, ju uh, of June, uh, and then maybe all the way till now. So, you know, it wasn't until I think uh, Compound 
you know, started their, you know, liquidity mining program, their yield farming program uh, that we really took an interest and we started participating. And then, you know, from there, it got even crazier in July uh, and, and as crazy in August. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that's sort of uh, when we really started taking a heavy look into it. What um, yourself as, you know, uh, as a fund and, you know, as a trader, what parts of DeFi are interesting you the most? Is it is it just the aspects of like liquidity mining and using pre-existing collateral you have to like, you know, make some, uh, you know, fairly easy money, at least from uh, it seems from this past summer um, or, or like how, how are you looking at it? Are you looking at it as like this is a, uh, a short term thing uh, and, and like you're just kind of like getting the money and kind of getting out? Uh, or do you think that this like has staying power and like uh, these sort of activities will continue? Uh, you know, honestly, a little bit of both. And maybe I can just start by saying that I think, you know, there's really two reasons that we're really interested in this stuff. Uh, the, the primary and you know most important reason is, you know, I obviously have a fiduciary duty um, to, to my investors. So, you know, we saw it as an opportunity in the market. Uh, to make some returns. Uh, and then also, I think, you know, from a technology standpoint, a lot of this stuff is very interesting. Uh, and in particular, I think uh, the concept of composability, that you have all these different smart contracts, you know, calling each other uh, all the way down the stack. Uh, the stack could be really high. Um, I think that, you know, that's not never really been possible before. And I think we're just starting to open the can of worms of what that leads to and what's possible uh, with composability. Um, you know, for other things like, uh, you know, I, I group DeFi really into two categories. They're sort of like, you know, your traditional DeFi products like lending, borrowing, trading, stuff like that. Uh, and then you have like this subset, which is like money games, right? So you have like yams, um, Apple four, you know, all the food tokens. Uh, so, you know, I think those are very different. I think, you know, for a lot of the uh, sort of degen money games, um, that's kind of come to a close. I think people are kind of um, exhausted from that or a bit saturated from that stuff. It was good while it lasted, but, you know, ultimately it was really just a game. Uh, I think for, uh, you know, the more traditional uh, DeFi projects, uh, I think some of them have quite a bit of staying power. And I think it really depends on a case by case, uh, depending what we're talking about. Um, a lot of it has to do with, I think, you know, uh, a lot of these are on Ethereum. So some of them are sort of contingent on Ethereum having some kind of breakthrough in scaling, and some don't rely on that. So I think the ones that don't rely on it, uh, you know, there's at least some existential risk removed from them. Uh, I think some that are relying on that, you know, hopefully Ethereum uh, is able to scale. And then, uh, you know, we'll see those things uh, do, do super well, too. Uh, but, you know, obviously there's some risk there. You, uh, you you touched on something that I like there um, with your last response, and that is, you know, doing something that's never done, been done before. I always felt like crypto has always been looking for that, like, niche that, you know, could translate to the greater public as to something that's never been done before. Can you like elaborate a little bit on that the composition that you were just talking about, like how you stack these smart contracts to do things that haven't been done before, at least, you know, uh, yeah, to sure. people that. Yeah. So, you know, I think, Go for uh, you know, a great example would be something like why earn and that entire ecosystem. You know, I think traditionally in, in the real world, uh, you know, there are things like robo advisors, which is kind of what they're doing, uh, but never has it been, so automated and so efficient, right? The, the moment that you deposit into some of these Y vaults, immediately the strategy starts working, starts allocating it out to all these DeFi lending protocols like Compound Aave, doing auto rebalancing for you and whatnot. The thing is completely frictionless. You don't need to talk to somebody on the phone. You don't need to fill out paperwork. You know, it's just super streamlined and super efficient. And I think um, that's really what 
you know, where the power of composability comes in because everything's already, the wiring has already been connected. So all you need to do is just push one button and then it does everything for you and then it starts, you know, calling other contracts for you. So I think that something like that has never really been done before. So I think, I think that is really interesting. Mm. It is fun. I played with DeFi. I was telling Steven I played with DeFi for like a little bit. I'm a little bit conservative, Steven would say. But I played with it for a little bit and I was like, wow, this is actually super easy to make money. It's kind of scary. But I mean anyways. Uh, I'm just it's 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 a good time. It's it's fun. But it's just like so so in relation to like Galois, do you guys how do you guys go about like kind of like placing like where and making decisions on, on which of these assets are worth like the risk? Are you guys like actually doing like deep auditing of these smart contracts? Because clearly, right, it's advantageous to liquidity mine, or is it more so like running with the pack and going with other people who have already done that appropriate due diligence? Because, you know, as we know, like time is of the essence when you're looking to like get in on some of these different assets. So for you guys over the summer, was it more like, how did you guys go about like making those decisions in real time? Yeah, um, you know, I've, I have some thoughts there, but I wanted to just really quickly echo what uh, Dimitri said, which is, uh, you know, one of the great things about DeFi is that anybody can participate. You know, we can all play around with these things, see how we like them. And there's no sort of barriers of entry. You know, even, uh, you know, anybody anywhere in the world can just decide, oh, I want to check this thing out and, you know, play around with it. And they can't. So it's completely permissionless, which I think is a really great thing. Uh, no red tape, no paperwork. Uh, but, you know, going off of what you're saying, Stephen, um, you know, I think there's a lot that goes into, um, you know, assessing the risks and, and the, the sort of potential rewards of, of a lot of these DeFi protocols and with yield farming in general. Um, what, what I would say is that a lot of this, you know, there's some um, quantitative components to it, but a lot of it is also more of an art than a science, right? Like, I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Like, uh, if we're putting, let's say, capital into, let's say, Compound or Aave, right? Like, what's the risk there? Well, the smart contracts could get hacked. You know, there could be a bug uh, that's unforeseen, something like that. But how do you really quantify that risk? Well, it's, you know, it's kind of hard. You know, you look at the code, you read the code. It looks fine. You know, I mean, do you wait for the audit or, you know, do you do you, do you only invest in the things which is asked a, a, an audit or, you know, are you more risk taking? You know, I think with, with a yield farming in general, what you see is that um, the yields are most massive when you don't follow the pack. Before anybody gets in, the yields could be, you know, quadruple digit, uh, you know, five, five digit yields. And then like within the hour or within like six hours, you know, within a day, uh, it's come down to like, you know, double digit or triple digit, which is, you know, still ridiculous. But, you know, um, you know, there's, there, you know, time is of the essence. So, you know, if you spend time, uh, you know, vetting out these, you know, the, the code behind everything, uh, you know, all these smart contracts, um, at what point do you decide, okay, I've done enough vetting. I feel pretty confident about this thing. I'm willing to take the risk and put the, put the capital in. Or are you just going to wait for, you know, the audit to complete? And at that point, everybody knows that the audit's completed. So the tons of money is going to start pouring in, uh, you know, driving down the yields. So it's like, what kind of risk tolerance do you have? Um, for me, the way that I think about it is that, you know, ultimately, I have fiduciary duties. So I think about the risk preferences of my investors. And I think about, you know, what would they prefer? Um, how would they How would they like um, us to behave, right? And obviously, different people disagree. Some people might be more risk-seeking. Some people might be more risk-averse. Um, I try to take that all into consideration, and then you know, just deal with you know, deal with it on an aggregate level. On average, how much risk um, do my investors want to take, and at what point will we feel comfortable jumping into the protocol? Mm. 
do do you guys uh do how do you guys make determinations on as far as like sizing that risk right so say something like harvest finance comes out really cool we're gonna, we're gonna check into that look into that real quick everything looks for the mostly part for the good all right so some of the you know normal usual suspects are in there you know the word on the grapevine is things are good how do you make that decision to like say okay i'm gonna risk two hundred fifty thousand dollars in you know some like capital here i'm gonna put five like how is it do you just like change the sizing like just based on like a gut feeling or is there actually like a quantify like, again i'm just saying it's an art and a science so i'm more so trying to figure out what, what sort of combination you're using here when you make those decisions yeah so you know i think um uh, a lot of the sizing you know depends on two questions i think the first is whether or not like if you if you end up getting uh, your smart contract breached or you get hacked um you know will that be uh you know, death knell for the for the firm. Like, what, can the firm survive something like that? Um, and I think, you know, if the answer is yes, then, you know, then there's a lot of flexibility. If the answer is no, then you really got to decide whether or not you want to go all in on this thing, right? And I think for the most part, we're very uncomfortable uh, doing something like that. Now, of course, now if you told me, like, you know, it's a trillion percent yield, I mean, like, with, with some tail risk on a smart contract, yeah, I mean, we would bet the entire firm. I, I don't think our investors uh, would would uh you know be against something like that if the yield really justified it but i think anything short of something absolutely ridiculous um you know the most important thing is the survivability uh, and i think you know there's a lot of different ways of thinking about it um you know traditionally there's like literature about the kelly criterion for example which i think is studied in gambling and you know in playing poker or you know uh you know any game that you have edge horse track racing stuff like that any game which you have edge um, you know, well, how do you size your bet so that you minimize your risk of ruin, right? So I think, you know, that's a good way to go about it. Um, but I think ultimately it comes down to risk reward trade-off. I'm willing to take more risk for something which, you know, the returns are higher and I'm willing to take less risk for things where, you know, the returns are lower. So that's kind of how I think about it. Makes sense. Makes sense. That was really good. I, I, I appreciate that and the insights and understanding there because it's different when you want to approach something with like, um, you know, a fixed number of assets like mm -hmm. bitcoin or ethereum and you say okay cool i want to have like x percent i want to have i know there's this much of the circulating supply i want to be able to like have this positioning just curious you know from a traditional like perspective when it's coming into yield farming you know there's going to be a fixed supply of this asset but there's also now this governance overhead risk that you know if you're going to go about sizing that someone can make changes and then change the supply change it to, you know, uh, decide that they were going to migrate to a completely different new uh, token contract. And everyone's cool with that. Um, you know, how do you think about governance risk in DeFi since, you know, things aren't set in stone like blockchains, right? Things move in real time. Like now there's all this overhead of needing to keep an eye on all these different protocols and what's going down. Do you feel like that that really limits how many projects that an investor can really get into at one time. And yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, I think it's uh, you know very different than smart contract risk. I think for governance risk, I, I'm a little bit less worried about it because um, you know there's going to be less events on the tail. And what I mean by that is just like catastrophic risk is lower. Now there could still be you know risk in the sense that you could lose capital, you lose money uh, because you know people make bad governance decisions. But it's not an all or nothing kind of thing. So I feel a little bit more comfortable with it. I think. Um, most of the time, now sometimes this isn't true, but I think most of the time, uh, you know, people uh, who have a stake in this kind of protocol, they're not 
uh, you know, most of the time going to vote against their own interests, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think even they could still be wrong. They could still be reasoning about stuff wrong. But at least I think everybody's kind of aligned uh, to try and make things, uh, you know, make the price go up or, you know, to build a better product, you know, that sort of thing. Now, there are some things to be uh, careful about, which is that, you know, because it's, um, you know, sort of like there's, first of all, there's some quorum threshold usually, but once quorum is met, then it's basically the majority of the, the yeas versus the nays, whichever side wins, you know, that proposal either gets adopted or rejected. Um, we need to make sure that, you know, if someone has a very big voting block uh, or a lot of voting power, you know, they could try and do something and mess with the protocol in a way that benefits them at the expense of minority stakeholders. So I think, you know, once people start owning a, a huge sum of this, right, let's say there's an oligopoly of a group of like three or four groups, um, you know, that uh, that own 51% of the stake, uh, well, then, you know, you need to have, I think, a little bit of extra consideration. But as long as the distribution is fairly broad, and as long as, um, you know, generally people always have, you know, somewhat different opinions about what to do, uh, you can see, you know, all the debate that's happening on for example, the wire and governance forms or, you know, other governance forms, uh, then it should be uh, not too bad. And then it just comes down to how, what kind of quality community do you have? Do you have a bunch of people who are just looking for a quick flip or do you have people who are more committed for the long term? And then there's always some battling between short and long term. And then from there, there's also about the quality of the community that you, that you have. I think one of the things that you know, Wiren did really well by doing a full distribution, no pre-sale, no ICO, um, is that they attracted a lot of talent. And, uh, you know, until recently, there was, you know, with some controversy with EMN and Blue Kirby and whatnot, and Andre himself, uh, until that point, I mean, you know, had probably the highest density of really smart, you know, uh, down to the brass tacks kind of people who are in DeFi. Uh, and those people are coming out with some very interesting, uh, you know, very good proposals. So I think quality of the community matters too. So it's, I think it's all about incentives and uh, the quality of the people uh, that are running the protocol. But how does, mm. what is Galois' position on when they're farming to get these assets and how they participate in governance, right? Now imagine this, right? You're, you're starting Galois a few years back and you're going to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have these traders and like, okay, guys, like you also kind of like got to know governance and like, you're going to have to use some of our treasury to like vote in our favor so we can keep making money. You know, like what, like, how do you, how do you go about thinking, <laughs> thinking about like participating in governance in DeFi? Like that seems like, it could be, I don't know, seems like a lot of either an extra work or very risky for a lot of different firms who might not even like want to attempt or play a role in it and might just sit on the wayside and let the market decide. Like, what's your thoughts there? Yeah, so uh, without disclosing uh, exactly which projects, but we have participated in governance uh, for two separate projects. And uh, the, the idea behind them was um, about how, I think the first one, was a little bit more altruistic. The first one was that we actually thought that, that you know, a lot of the folks in the community were going to do a vote. And I think, it, you know, one side was winning and I, we thought that that was actually a mistake. So it was really for, to sort of preserve the long-term value uh, of this thing. And of course we're stakeholders. So there, you know, there's some financial benefit, but I think part of it was a bit altruistic. The second time we participated, uh, that was more for selfish reasons. That was more for, uh, we saw that there was some um, uh, you know, opportunity to, to, to take there. And there was some way that we could vote and which benefited us and which we did that. Um, so we've done it twice. Um, I, I, I hesitate to say exactly where uh, because we try and keep that uh, really on the DL. Um, you know, part of our alpha is coming from uh, how we do these votes and how we participate mm -hmm. in governance. Oh, here's, uh, uh, here's another question. I'm not going to keep like stealing them from me because I'm sure Dimitri has some, but that goes to a great question of obviously your alpha is you know, privately on how your trade strategy. So what are your thoughts on like 
you know, on-chain transparency and people using like ENS accounts and names and basically branding their trading activity. And like, how, like, do you guys go out of your way any at all to obfuscate your trades, at least on-chain at this point? Um, yeah, we have actually, um, but not to a heavy degree. Um, I think there are certain, uh, you know, apps and websites, like for example, Nansen, for example, uh, which does a lot of heavy tracking. And we, of course, cross-reference our addresses onto Nansen to make sure that they don't know who we are. So, you know, I think beyond that, I think, uh, you know, we don't do too much. You know, we're not like, you know, we're not just like continuously cycling our, our, our funds from address to address. Uh, you know, there's some operational overhead. But I think we do, you know, the broad checks to make sure that we stay somewhat anonymous in the activities that we do. And uh, the reason that I think that is somewhat important is because, you know, through Nansen and through some other um, apps and through some, some scripts that we've developed, we are kind of keeping track of uh, some of what some other people are doing. And it has been, I wouldn't say directly beneficial, but it certainly helps paint a picture of what's going on in the market. And, uh, you know, I think it has been uh, pretty useful. And I think, you know, um, I, I, you know, obviously, I think for them, maybe not so much, right? But, uh, you know, if they're not really protecting their privacy there, uh, and everything is on chain, then we're very happy to take a look, you know, it's, uh, it's not beyond us to take a look there. I would like to uh, change the tone a little bit. I mean, if you're allowed to, like, I mean, are you allowed to even disclose, like, what are some of, like, you know, the three pointers at the buzzer that you've hit? Like, what are some calls that you've made that's like, damn, I'm good? Like, it can't, is that is that fair to do in your industry? Or you know, does everything have to be on the hush? Can you say, like, yeah, I got in on that and my gains were this. We did that. I got a lot. We did that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I am actually happy to talk about things in the past. Uh, the reason that Hell yeah. oh, boy. <laughs> that is still going on. So, you know, once that passes, you can invite me back. I'll tell you all about it. Uh, oh. But, you know, it may take time. But for stuff in the past, very happy to talk about stuff like that. So uh, we, we were actually pretty conservative about our bet making. And we've only done uh, maybe three discretionary long short bets over the past three years. So about once a year. Um, in 2018, that was going long on Bitcoin based on the macro cycle at a blended price of 3750. Uh, that worked out very well for us, and we held that position for quite a while, for multiple months. Um, and then we went flat at some point, and then we now we're back to long. So actually, we're quite long right now. Uh, this is hopefully maybe uh, you know going to pay off a little. We, it's already paid off a little bit, but hopefully uh, you know we're right, ready for another bull market. Um, in 2019, we bought FTT, so that was uh, at 10 cents uh, at the time, and then I think now it's trading at mm. three something. Nice. Uh, we actually sold off a bit too early. We sold. Uh, we started hedging our position at eighty cents, and then all the way up to about dollar ninety four. I'm not going to complain about that. It was still great, but uh, you know maybe we underestimated uh, just how much it could run up. And uh, you know I definitely have some regrets about selling so early, but you know still very happy that we participated. Um, and then. Uh, the last one was uh, for 2020, we participated in yield farming for Wi-Fi. Uh, we were actually probably the number one farmer uh, uh, in terms of how much Wi-Fi we farmed. Uh, and then on top of that, we we levered our bet a bit because normally when we farm tokens, we just immediately dump it into the market. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff we see as very short term. And even with the long term, we see that, you know, we didn't think that things were particularly uh, undervalued. Um, so in that case, then we would just get rid of the risk. But I think for Wi-Fi, that was different. Not not only did we farm it, we, we held on to a large chunk of that over time. And uh, we were basically selling all the way from $200 to about 28000 So we got out of our last clip at around 28000 So, you know, uh, <laughs> oh, uh, 
worked out pretty well for us. I do regret some of the sales we made at 200 uh, and the 1000 range below 1000. But, you know, at the time, I mean, it was so hard to call and we wanted to hedge our risk. Uh, it was becoming a bigger, bigger part of the portfolio. So, uh, you know, was, we just uh, we just started hedging some, some over there. That but, being uh, said, know, that Wi-Fi was interesting in the sense that, like, there was a lot of there was a lot of big money and a lot of big, smart people behind that. And, you know, I, I wonder, uh, do you think that there basically is just like this oligopolistical what's the word there oligopolistic yeah oligopolistic that's it sorry that was a tongue twister (laughs) um like group of individuals uh excuse me that like you know have a large amount of these like DeFi, like basically like you know like assets uh and stuff like on hand and a lot of them are just like really playing this market um and it's like really like centralized to a few groups of people it seems to me that there's a a massive amount of liquidity that is amongst a few groups smaller players um, that are doing extremely well? Uh, I think actually both is the case. I think there's a lot of small players. And I also think there are some large groups. So, uh, you know, we've been in contact with some of these groups. Uh, you know, we, we've been tracking some of their addresses. We've been seeing how much capital they're deploying. Uh, we are certainly not the biggest farmer in DeFi, even at its peak. I think we are probably rank, I mean, the highest we got was probably rank three. Um, I think it's most of the time we're like rank, rank five. So there's definitely some groups out there deploying way more capital than us. Um, and uh, you can see, you know, everything's on chain. You can kind of see um, how that evolved. So, you know, we, we know we've de-anonymized some of them and we've, we've talked with them for their thinking, um, you know, discussed uh, strategies with them. But then also there's a long tail of individual participants, too. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of capital that come from them. Um, now, I will say one advantage of, I think, being a bigger shop is that you're less you're subject less to the gas fees, right? Like if you're just putting in, like, let's say a grand or two grand and then the gas cost is like a 100 bucks, you know, you know, there goes all your yield right there, you know. But I think if you're deploying millions at a time, then, you know, if you pay 100 bucks every time you do a transfer, it's a lot easier. So I, I would say based on the structure of Ethereum's, you know, gas auctions, uh, I do think that favors uh, larger players. But I think outside of that, I don't think that there's any particular benefit that larger players have. I, I generally don't think that they collude. In fact, we've definitely taken very opposite positions as some of the other large uh, farmers at the time. Uh, we've had many disagreements. Uh, I think I think there were times we even voted differently and against each other uh, at certain times. So, you know, I think it's kind of a free-for-all even there. You know, I think uh, people are all trying to make returns for themselves. Uh, you know, they're not, I don't think there's too much collusion at all going on. Um, but I, But I do think that uh, structurally based on how gas is paid and how networks get congested, uh, there is uh, that one advantage, I think, for larger players. Everything else, I think, pretty equal. So in relation to that, the people that you interact with and you're like looking at this different like on-chain like activity, like guys, like you mentioned. So like, is there actually like a back channel of folks being like, oh, damn, like that was some pretty good trades. I'm going to hit up this person. I'm trying to find out who this person is and like talk strategy. Like you mentioned that, like, does that actually happen? Yeah, you know, sometimes we do talk strategy and sometimes it's with firms and sometimes mm-hmm. it's with individuals. Like there's a whole uh, slew of new, you know, sort of Twitterati folks, right? Coming out of the woodwork, completely anonymous with an avatar from a video game character or a frog or something like that, you know? So you like, you don't really know who these people are, but you know, you might hit them up on a DM and say, hey, you know, uh, you know, I saw you were posting about, you know, let's say the bonding curve for NXM, you know, would like to get more of your thoughts on how you're thinking about this, this and that, right? So I think a lot of it is done ad hoc. Sometimes it's with individuals, sometimes it's with, you know, much bigger firms, uh, but it's just all kind of ad hoc. 
You know, that's the one thing I think is is really great about DeFi is that big or small, um, you know, if people know their stuff and people listen to them. And that's, I think, how a lot of these Twitter accounts got so many followers uh, so quickly. Um, you know, I think it's a it's in that way, it's very much a meritocracy. And I think a little bit different than I think the ICO boom in the sense that, you know, this time around, uh, the people I think who did well really understood the mechanisms behind these protocols um, rather than I think in the ICO era, I think that mattered, but I think a lot of it also was uh, privileged access to deal flow, right? If you could get into the pre, pre, pre round, uh, then you did better than the pre, pre round who did better than the pre round. <laughs> right? you know what I mean? So I think, you know, it's more, it's less about access and it's more about, you know, study of the mechanism and, and the game theory. And I think in that way, it's, it's a bit more fair and democratic. So basically, it seems to me like DeFi and these very exorbitant returns are basically like because of the market's infancy, because of the gas fees, because of this barrier to entry, we probably won't see this long tail of new, well, not only just strategy, but, you know, just interest in DeFi until it's on layer two, until these costs are down. And of which at that point, you have a lot more competition, I would say. Uh, and at that point, you know, obviously, you know, all of us as, you know, funds that are like deploying in these different like strategies, ourselves, like in momentum, it's been very like minimal on our side with uh, on ETH as we try and figure out the best ways to go apart doing this as we prepare for, um, you know, ETH 2.0 and staking. Um, so that, that leads me to, um, I guess, my last like really good question to so I don't like, you know smash you too many with these but i'm sure people are wondering like what are your thoughts uh on like the emergence of uh you know eve 2.0 and like staking and like how do you guys plan to you know uh, uh, approach that as a fund that i'm sure probably holds ETH? um yeah so you know uh i i want to just preface that by by saying that you know i i know you're a very big uh, ethereum bull steven so you know i, I don't want to say any Thing, uh, you know, cast aspersions on, on Ethereum here. Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously I have my own opinions and I don't mean it in any way uh, to be disrespectful or uh, to discount. The oh, whole. no, it's all good, dude. You made a whole bunch of money on YFI. That's on Ethereum and all. It's all the yeah, same. Yeah, same, 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 <laughs> same. So I, what I would say is that, you know, we've been promised proof of stake and we've been promised scaling for such a long time. We've been waiting years and years for this thing. And uh, I think we're getting closer and closer to it. But, you know, at this point, um, you know, I, I've become a little bit cynical, a little bit pessimistic. You know, I believe it when I see it. I hope they actually do launch. Uh, I hope uh, scaling actually does work. I hope, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, you don't have all these apps that are just congesting up the fees for all these other apps um, and that, you know, a lot more can be done uh, on chain. So, um, you know, crossing my fingers, hoping it'll happen, uh, but a little bit skeptical, a little bit cynical about, uh, you know, having already taken so long, whether or not that'll happen. So, you know, uh, you probably know a lot better than I do about all the scaling stuff. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It's okay. I, we all know that I'm more of a broad generalist and, and you only go in deep wells of things that really get my interest. And you're definitely the trader here. And, you know, I don't have any concerns about E2.0 and scaling, but, um, but I won't go into the weeds on that because there's plenty of other podcasts and discussions where they'll do that. And that's not the scope of today's conversation. But what I do want from... Dimitri is Dimitri. Do you have any, you know, questions from just like the peanut gallery that you think that somebody of like, you know, Kevin's acumen, if, if you were listening in, that you would want to ask? Um, not really. I mean, I was gonna let Kevin give the opportunity to describe like two things, like kind of like the client persona, the people that you know are signing up to do business with Gal Law, and also you know if if the people that work with Gal Law 
if you want to try to, you know, throw some hooks out there for people that would want to join your crew, if it even has openings, I don't know. Um, but just kind of like give you a platform to uh, talk to Gal Law. Um, yeah, happy to chat about that. Um, you know, I think on, on the first point, uh, we, we don't really have any clients. Um, you know, we're not a customer facing business. Uh, we're basically just trading capital. Uh, what we do do is that we do have OTC counterparties. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, if anybody is looking to trade a large block of crypto, you know, obviously we're, we're doing very, uh, you know, stringent KYC AML, but, you know, supposing that they go through with all the paperwork and they onboard, um, you know, we can do uh, clips of, of, of crypto, any kind really, um, that's uh, hundred grand uh, in size or more. Uh, maybe we'll be raising the minimum at some point. And I think we can get some uh, good execution. So if you, if you have a direction to express on any particular asset, um, you know, very happy to facilitate uh, that liquidity. Now on, on the front of, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, whether we're hiring or not, you know, we're, we always are hiring. And, uh, you know, in particular, I think uh, we are looking for C++ engineers right now. So we're a bit full staffed uh, on a lot of the other places like the trading desk, uh, back office, stuff like that. Uh, but we are looking for C++ engineers. And really, it's, um, you know, push that we're trying to make into uh, HFT. So we're going through a lot of refactoring. Uh, we built our, our initial code base a lot in Python. Now we're converting that over to C++ for speed. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be done there. Um, you know, we, we're not really touching the hardware level yet. We're not doing FPGAs or even like kernel bypass stuff uh, like that yet. Uh, mostly it's just about software optimization um, and uh, just making sure that our tick to trade latency is really low. So, um, so that's what we're working on right now. O open hiring, open and looking at resumes and uh, yeah, just looking to, uh, you know, grow the team and to keep growing as a company. You, you did mention um, uh, high frequency trading and stuff like that. So, I mean, uh, and then we spoke to Kyle Davies about this on a previous episode and, you know, he was an investor in, uh, in Darabit and, you know, he's a big fan of, you know, trading with collateral and options and, you know, that's a big part of what three arrows does. Um, so like, uh, you know, how does that like work out for you guys? Like, are uh, you guys, are you guys going to be like working with an exchange already in mind or like, are, are, are you are making investments in exchanges as well into the ecosystem? Yeah, so, you know, I, I can't speak for the firm, but I've personally made an investment into Deribit. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I think we're just starting to see the dawn of, uh, you know, options trading in crypto and, you know, Deribit's number one. Uh, I think it's, you know, particularly difficult to, uh, you know, battle the incumbent, especially where, uh, you know, with options, I mean, there's so many dimensions to it. There's calls, puts, different strikes, different terms. Uh, you know, porting that liquidity over to a new exchange, I think, is particularly difficult. So, um, you know, I'm going to invest with the incumbent here, uh, you know, assuming that this does become, uh, you know, a big, uh, uh, you know, a big market, uh, the options market. Um, now, in terms of HFT, uh, you know, I think, you know, there, there's a lot to be said over there. I think, you know, overall, um, it usually leaves a bad taste in people's mouth, you know, because I think, you know, overall, people you know, people have been hearing about HFT and, you know, how these people are bad and, you know, reading Flash Boys, Michael Lewis's book and whatnot. So I think, you know, already there's this kind of general sentiment about HFT, which is very negative. And I think a bit misinformed, honestly. I, I think if it wasn't for the fact that there was HFT, spreads for equities and the mature markets would not be as tight as they are, right? And at the end of the day, all that liquidity, all that um, provisioning of liquidity, it really helps out uh, directional traders, right? Now, instead of paying, you know, 50 bips uh, to execute a long short position. Now you only need to pay like half a bit, you know? And I think a lot of that due was due to the advent of HFT. Because if you think about it from a market maker's perspective, the faster they are, the, the less that they risk on getting picked off. Now, like, what do I mean by getting picked off? 
What I mean is that like, if you put up an order, let's say you're, you have like your, your one unit bid, um, you know, on a, at uh, let's say hundred bucks per, per Bitcoin, right? Something like that, right? And then, um, you know, now the market shifts everywhere else, uh, the market shifts, right? And now, you know, maybe fair market price is 99. You want to be able to cancel that order um, before someone picks you off, before it becomes stale and someone just takes advantage of you. So the only way that you can do that is if you're very fast and you have very low latency. And if I am able to do that, then generally I'm willing to provide tighter quotes, right? So then normally during the normal day-to-day -day when people trade against uh, our quotes, then we're willing to take smaller and smaller spread because we know that we don't face much of a risk of just being stale, right? So I, I generally think that the faster um, you know the market maker is, the better offering they have to the rest of the market and the less ultimately everybody ends up paying um so you know i think you know hft has really kind of you know been uh you know associated with a lot of sort of negative social capital but i think a lot of that is misplaced yeah oh damn yeah no in, in, incredibly well said um you know i was just trying to you know understand basically where your bet was uh you know on uh, exchanges with that level of like maturity. And it, it seems like based off of listening to both you and Kyle now, I've pretty much decided that Darebit's gonna be really massive. <laughs> and probably be number one for quite a while. Um, seems like everyone has chosen their their horse in, uh, in that race. And, that, and that's, that's really awesome. And so, you know, hopefully everyone's investments uh, in Darebit are successful. Looks like I'm gonna have to play around with it now. Um, but, you know, that being said, like- Yeah, I just, I just wanna jump in and say, uh, this is not investment advice, you know, obviously <laughs> in this thing. Um, so, you know, I, I obviously believed in it. That's why I invested, but this is not investment advice. I, you know, that's, I'm not allowed to do. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, and that being said, uh, we appreciate your knowledge in educating us today, which is what all you did today was just educate us. Uh, uh, and, you know, thanks for coming back on the show for the second time and being a return guest and like always being, you know, such a, such a well of a uh, deep well of knowledge uh, into the space. And, you know, myself, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't, you know, for you uh, and a lot of your help, you know, uh, along the way. So, you know, you know, thank you for your continued assistance and thank you for your continued, uh, you know, contributions to the space, uh, you know, and helping to like push things forward and like make people, you know, kind of take this stuff more seriously. And it's guys like you, um, that's really going to help, you know, push us into like the mainstream as, you know, the, the incumbent legacy forces look and say, man, people like Kevin are killing it. We got to get in there. Um, so, you know, uh, best to you, best to, you know, Galois. And, you know, I, I hope that you can come back on again soon and you can tell us that you had like one of the most in crazy amazing returns of your life and now you've retired and you're gonna buy an island in the bahamas <laughs> you know honestly i think for guys like you and me i think we just enjoy the game you know so you know what oh, i'm yeah. doing in retirement i like that anyway you know but uh you know really appreciate all the kind words and uh, really grateful that uh you invited me back uh, over the block channel obviously very happy to come on at any point um and uh you know uh, happy to share my thoughts on uh you know anything that uh, you guys want to talk about Thanks a lot, man. And I'm sure the audience appreciates it. I know definitely I do. It's always refreshing to hear from you. Hopefully we can have a coffee at some point once this COVID stuff isn't so crazy, maybe in the new year. Who knows? Um, so so thanks again. And um, we'll definitely have you back on again in the future. Yeah, sounds good, man. Looking forward to seeing you in person too, Stephen. It's been a while. Hey guys, I'll make this real quick. Just want to make sure you check out the link to the sponsor in the show notes, Van Moof. That's spelled V-A-N-M as in Martin. OOF.com. Uh, and they are an e bike company out of Berlin, Germany. And they are um, providing us a bike 
uh, for us to test and use here uh, at Block Channel. And I've been a huge fan of their premium bike, and I think e-mobility is going to be a large sector growing and going forward as the world becomes you know, more decentralized, more mobile, more distributed. Uh, you know, medium range, like extended vehicles and things of that nature are definitely going to grow uh, in, in different forms and factors. Uh, so huge fan of Van Move here at the Block Channel and want to make sure you guys check that out.